0: this is ari koretsky and welcome to jews you should know introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring jewish men and women making a difference in our world some are already famous some not yet so but each is a jew you should know and we are back with another fabulous episode of jews you should know very excited to bring this to you and this week we're going to feature Ellie Glazer, the founder of Soveya, which essentially is an organization helping people learn to eat more healthfully and consciously, intentionally, more in line perhaps with the real spirit of Jewish values. I was editing this episode, ironically, yesterday uh, on a fast day, the 17th of Tammuz, Shivas which is a sad day in the Jewish calendar, the official inauguration of the period known as the three weeks, which culminates in Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av, the saddest day on the Jewish calendar. In any event, I thought it was uh, interesting that I was editing particularly this episode about healthy eating and about an elevated relationship with food on a day that I couldn't eat any food. But in any event... Ellie has a really really wonderful personal story and a very compelling narrative with respect to this unique organization that he has founded. A reminder again to follow us on Instagram at Jews you should know spelled out fully, also Twitter Jews you should know with the letter U, Facebook Jews you should know. You can always email me at Jews you should at gmail.com. And one other quick announcement. This week, and in future weeks as well, I'm going to try to highlight some other Jewish podcasts that I am listening to or becoming aware of. It's a uh, doggy dog world out there in the world of podcasting, and research shows that most people learn about any given podcast from other podcasts that they listen to. And Jewish podcasters are few and far between, and there's a couple of us that are going to be trying to cross-promote each other's programs. And uh, I'm going to start that today. A friend of mine out in Houston, Texas, Rabbi Yaakov Wolby, or Volby, depending on your pronunciation, hosts actually six different podcasts. Uh, They're a little bit different, not kind of the whimsical interview style that I have here, but more, I would say, uh, intellectual or content-heavy in a certain sense. He's really giving fantastic classes for the most part, but they're really optimized for a podcast form. So we'll have one, for example, that goes through the weekly Torah portion in real depth in a a wonderful way. I just listened to one last night. He has another one called the Jewish History Podcast, where he's going through, not surprisingly, Jewish history. So the best way to find his content is to go into your search engine of whatever podcast app you're listening to, Apple, whatever it might be. And type in Wolbe, W-O-L-B-E, and you'll get uh, a link to all of his different shows, all six of his different options. You can also type in the specific names of his shows, uh, the Jewish History Podcast, the Torah Podcast, I believe, and, and some others. Um, but by typing in Wolbe, you'll get direct access to all of them at once. And I hope you'll find some time in your schedule to check out other great Jewish podcasts. And I hope some of his audience We'll do the same with ours on Jews You Should Know. And now, without further ado, we go to our conversation with Sovea founder, Ellie Glazer. And we are here with Ellie Glazer, of Sovea, the founder of Sovea, a wonderful organization uh, dealing with healthy eating and, and living within the Jewish community. And how are you, Ellie? I'm great. Thanks, you Yourself? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you so, so much for joining us. What would you have for lunch today? <laughs> no pressure. I actually <laughs> did not have any lunch. And if I'm going to be the, uh, the test case or the, under the interrogation lights, it's going to be a long interview because <laughs> <laughs> I have some of the, uh, the least uh, healthy eating habits, unfortunately. But I have actually recently just been chronicling what I'm eating just as a first step to address my diet. I'm not doing anything about it. All I'm doing is writing down what I eat. And so I'm hoping that'll be an interesting first step. But you can, uh, you'll maybe give me some, some guidance on that. But anyway. Uh, That's an important thing to do. Absolutely. There, there we go. Knowledge is the first step, right? Mm-hmm. Well, um, where are you coming to us from, Ellie? Where Where are you based? I'm on the Jersey Shore,
1: otherwise known as Lakewood, New Jersey.
0: <laughs> Very nice. I'm not sure too many people refer to that as the Jersey Shore, but... Uh, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm on the border of Tom's River, so I like to, you know, identify myself that way. You got the river in there. There you go. So, Ellie, where did you grow up? And tell us about a little bit about your early background.
1: Uh, so, I actually grew up in the, the D.C. area.
0: Oh, wow. Cool. Yeah.
1: I, I grew up, I was um, from a non-observant home and uh, went to... DC public schools, a survivor of DC public schools. And then were uh, actually in, the, in the district, not in Montgomery County. Yeah. Well, for junior high and the first year of high school, I was in, um, in the district. Then we moved to Silver Spring. I graduated from Blair. From Blair, right around the corner. Okay. Well, yeah, before it moved to the mega, you know, campus that it was in. It was on in. Four Corners. Right, exactly. It was on, uh, you know, near, near, Spring Silver, downtown Silver Spring. Okay. I went to University of Maryland. Go Terps. Yep. Uh, and I was a uh, journalism major. Uh, and uh, I was actually a sports writer. I worked at the Diamondback, wow. uh, and then my sophomore year, I got a job at the Washington Post, and I worked there for three years, uh, pseudo part-time, worked about 30, 35 hours a week, and then I joined the Baltimore Sun, was, uh, was a sports journalist there for five years, and then I uh, got a job at the Charlotte Observer as a sports columnist down there for a year, and then Vince the took me to Israel, and uh, that's kind of where the first transition in my life took place.
0: Well, there goes so now- what, uh, what sports teams were you an early aficionado of? Well, usually I started from the ground up. So I was a small
1: fish in a big pond. So I covered high school sports to high a lot of the sports. <laughs> and uh, college sports. But college sports during that time was in the mid 80s. Um, dating myself, you know, this Omer beard here. So the gray is uh, growing in you know, much, much to my consternation. Um, so actually covering the Big East and the ACC with Michael Jordan and Lenny Bias and Patrick Ewing. Yep. at Georgetown, at Maryland, at North Carolina. It was an incredible time. It was the heyday of college
0: basketball. Were you at Maryland when Bias was, was playing? I was, yes. Oh, wow. Some g- incredible teams. And some people say he was uh, the next Michael Jordan or as, as good as Michael Jordan. And uh, I, I imagine you remember his tragic and untimely demise.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it was, real, it was a real tragedy. And, um, and the thing about him, without getting too sidetracked, that he wasn't a real drug abuser. And that showed just the way he tried to celebrating his getting drafted in the NBA. And he had some friends and he, the quantity of the drugs that they did, it literally just blew his heart up. Wow. Tragically. Cause he, he, he worshiped his body. He had like 0% body fat and, you know, just one of these tragedies of kids caught in the wrong place and, you know, making decisions that we've realized the consequences at that moment, we don't see what they are, but they clearly are fatal. Yeah,
0: sure that's, but anyway. that was a heady time for, for college sports and, and the, it's the Georgetown was at its height. He had John Thompson and, and all the, the luminaries uh,
1: exactly. of, the, of that time. And, and, right. You know, all, the, all the guy, you know, before even Alonzo Mourning Morning and, you know, Camby Mutumbo. It was probably Patrick Ewing's time. I yeah, mean, exactly. Patrick, that's when Patrick Ewing came. He came from Boston, Cambridge Latin,
0: from Jamaica. And,
1: uh, you know, they during his four years, they made the NCAA finals three of the four years.
0: That's incredible. A whole different era when people would stay three, four years. You know, in college, the different level of college basketball.
1: Exactly, Jordan came out of it out of, uh,
0: after his third year, which was at that time very rare. Wow. so you were you were working at the post. Who were the great sports writers at the time there? And, and the Sun. Uh, well, Mike Wilbon,
1: Tony Kornheiser, you know um, Norman Chad, who was you know a friend of mine, actually introduced him to his wife now, his third wife. He, really, he, she she still you know is, uh, is upset at me for that introduction. <laughs> <laughs> third time's a charm. Okay. Right, exactly um and uh, so those were the you know the guys they yeah, are Son, in, uh, you were with what well, peter schmuck who was who was around well he was at the baltimore sun right but what before that it was to tim kirkshen was this right. was the orioles writer then um rosenthal then kenny
0: yeah so a lot of national the,
1: uh, personalities came out of the sun exactly they really did yeah so i was at the sun from 85 to 90 and timmy was the orioles beat writer then and then he went on uh and then he went into tv and then Kenny rosenthal took over for him uh and then he went on to tv and then peter schmuck came i think like last year i was there was
0: buster only around as well then uh no not when i was there yeah it's interesting you went from uh, the dc area to baltimore i grew up in baltimore and ended up down here in the dc area so okay we were in, uh, kind of reverse reverse order
1: exactly well in my first two years at the sun i was still commuting so i drove against the traffic That's
0: you know <laughs> on the B.W. parkway every day That's the five, right five. direction to go um, so you, you said you made your way to Israel at some point. What, uh, what brought you there? Um,
1: so it's a good question. So, um, you know, in my story is a little reversed. A lot of people, when they become more observant, usually the, the kids come and then they kind of enlighten their parents, their family, and their parents perhaps become more observant later on. For me, it was the opposite. My mother became observant when I was 16 years old, uh, when I was a junior at uh, Blair High School. And, um, For what impetus? Um, that's a whole big backstory to, you know, uh, but, uh, she, very unique, she just picked up a, an English translation of the Bible, started reading, started really connecting to the Jewish people, started really understanding and, and tapping into her identity, which she was a first generation, her parents were both from Europe, uh, and grew up in a kosher home initially, you know, but then the, the normal, typical American assimilation and, um, then, you know, she started basically reading it and then started identifying and wanting to learn more. She was a vociferous reader and learner and, and really it was a, a personal journey she made. And um, we were, again, Silver so Spring at that time, so she would walk two miles to Rabbi which the shul in Woodside. Woodside, sure. At that time. Uh, this was 79, uh, you know, and he and Sally, and uh, they were, so she became very close with them. Uh, and then she made that to Baltimore <laughs> um, a few years later. <laughs> and then she made that to Eretz Israel, and for years, she wanted me to, like, take a discovery program, go learn, you know, and I would spend, you know, time in holidays with her and, and, and a Shabbat meal, but it wasn't really for me. Judaism wasn't really a common denominator for me at that time. One really cute story is that, you know, we had a good relationship, so I, I saw a peace and a happiness in her that I, you know, was, was tangible, so I was very happy for her, but it wasn't something that was a real priority that spoke to me at that time. I was a 19-year-old kid. I had streamlined. I hear I was, you know, working. I was, you know, a significant job and career in journalism in the D.C., you know, Baltimore area. She said, well, at least, come on, you know, let's have a Friday night dinner. I understand you're in college, you're working, you're going to do what you're going to do, go out with your friends, but at least let's first have a Friday night dinner. And I said, fine. So she said, okay, this is what you do. You make or right? I learned how to make Kiddish, and she made a beautiful dinner and said, you know what we do after that? We read the Torah portion of the week. So, okay. So I said, fine. How long is it going to take? So 20 minutes. We sat down, and then we had, this was before Art scroll. So we had the Arya Kaplan living Torah. Sure. You know, and uh, we'd sit down, we'd read the portion of the week. And okay, that was fine. And after that, you know, I would go get my coat and go out and go with my friends on typical Friday night. So we did this for, for, for several months. And as it went down, and in my mind, the back of my mind, I had this date on the calendar kind of circled. And as the months were approaching it and the weeks were approaching it, and we finally got to this date. It was a Friday night. And so, okay, so we, you know, Friday night came and I made the Kiddush. And we had this, she made a, you know, delicious dinner. And she goes to proceed to sit down in the chair where she would normally sit down. And instead of me sitting in the couch where I would, I went to the closet to get my coat. And she looked at me, she said, Ellie, what are you doing? You know, it's now, we, now we're gonna read the, the tour portion of week." I said, no, Mom, we're finished. It's been a year. We did the whole book. Keep a track. <laughs> exactly. We, we, we did a whole year. And she looked at me like, No, you do it again. Sing it again, Maude. And I said, No, you don't. I'm not going to do it again. I'm finished. I've, I read the book. I'm good to go. That's great. That's terrific. <laughs> um, so, anyway, I didn't, but to make a long story short, she had made Aliye. And about eight years later, through a lot of uh, power of her prayers and tefillah. She made all that, I went to visit her. I actually had this month off between leaving the job and the Charlotte Observer actually hired me away as a sports columnist to work down there. Um, and I took the month off, I went to visit her. And for years she had wanted me to take the discovery program, or, you know, take a class, and really, again, it didn't really speak to me. But while we were walking through the old city, uh, Barnea Sullivan was giving us a tour, and there was a sign for the discovery program. Then it was a three-day seminar. And something inside of me said, okay, I'll take it. So I took it. This was in March of uh, 1990. And it really opened my eyes to the fact that, you know, maybe God does exist. Maybe that there is a design to Jewish history, that the Torah is true, and it's something to take seriously. Um, And I didn't stay, you know, even though the Rasheed, Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar, blessed memory, tried to, come on, stay a little longer. No, I went back. I had a job. You know, they flew me out. I had this career waiting for me but that was really the first seeds that were planted. And then in Charlotte, North Carolina, was the first time that I observed Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur at the Chabad house there with uh, Rabbi Yossi Groner and Benjamin Weiss, the two who are still there, the Shluchim there, you know, this is uh, in the summer of uh, 1990, uh, 1991. And 10 months later, I made Aliyah, the picture of myself at the, you know, at the Western Wall and at the Sea of Galilee, was speaking to me and I said, you know, I've been doing the sports writer for eight years. Maybe there's something more to life than three-point shots and, you know, in first downs. And I decided to make Aliyah and I wanted to become a foreign correspondent because at that time the first Gulf War had just begun, you know, Operation Desert Storm. And I actually went there and I was a war correspondent for Night Ridder Newspapers who was the chain that owned the Charlotte Observer. So I actually made Aliyah in January 17th of 1991. Uh, and hit the ground, and my first headline was "Baptism by Fire" because I got my gas mask, and the first scuds fell three hours after I got there. And I wrote from the Jerusalem bureau, um, and I you know did six weeks of uh, war coverage. And I figured I'd stay in yeshiva for like three or four months to get a background. I was 27 years old at that time. I figured it was time to settle down and become a you know a husband. I I you know I to know what it's mean to to keep kosher home to keep you know Shabbos. And uh, so I said three, four months. That was kind of my initial projection. Well, five years later, <laughs> <laughs> when I come professor. out. I got some. I got my rabbinical degree, and really, uh, I was a kira rabbi. I initially to our kira rabbi for twelve years. Where? Uh, in uh, well, five years I was in Yerushalayim, and then seven years in America. Two years in uh, D.C. Potomac. Oh, I worked
0: cool. with Steve Barnes. D.C. Rockville.
1: Yeah, right. Very then we were in Potomac, and uh, so okay. a very who was there? Tom Myers at the time. Who were you with? So Tom Myers started it. Uh, and then he left, and then uh, Chaim yes, yeah, Steve Bars. So Steve Bars uh, was there, and I was his educational director. And I was there for two years, and then I took the job of the executive director for the New England branch in Boston. I was there for five years in New England. What but, years? Were the, what years were you in New England? Uh, from ninety-eight to two thousand. Well, I, I ran H there from ninety-eight to two thousand and three. So you were you there with Svik Luckin? Were you there with? Uh, well, Svik came after. I was still in Boston. When I left, Svik kind of took over from me. I, my focus was more on young professionals, and Svik took and kind of geared it more toward the college crowd. Beautiful.
0: Beautiful. So eventually, it sounds like you uh, exited that world of Jewish education and, and outreach and so forth. Right. Uh, what, what eventually led to that was just the financial situation, and what, uh, what was the odyssey there?
1: Um, you know, it's, it was a culminate culmination of things. Um, I also had my personal struggles with, with eating. My, my personal you know, weight was like a yo-yo, up and down, up and down. Uh, and then coming back to America in transitions, I kind of used food as my um, comfort zone. Uh, you know, coming back and working in a nonprofit, especially you know, having a budget and being the, you know, the executive director there, I'm sure you can kind of relate to that <laughs> concept. And food was my go-to, and I put on 100 pounds. And uh, I was 300 pounds at the time. Uh, and go to my website and see, you know, this is, oh, audio anyway, so that's not going to help. <laughs> um, we'll plug the website, though. Don't worry. Okay, very good. So, um, and I tried to lose weight. I lost weight before, but it wasn't really happening. And uh, to make a long story short, I really went through a, a transformational time in my not just eating but my relationship with food where I, you know, kind of took the, a 12-step recovery approach to it, Yep. Um, and uh, thank God I lost 100 pounds, and my wife also went through the same thing, so between the two of us, we really transformed our lives, and it was still at the end of my age career, and so many people came up to us and said, Ellie, you know, what'd you do, and can you help me, my wife, my father, my brother, my sister, I mean, 70% of Americans are overweight or obese, it's the minority who don't struggle with the battle of the bulge, and we were just inundated with it, and we saw that there wasn't an organization in the Jewish world that was really focusing on not just weight loss, but healthy eating and the Torah obligation, the Jewish obligation to really take care of ourselves specifically within the realm and the lens of eating. So we founded Sobeya. Um, and we, we founded it, incorporated it still while we were in Boston 2007. And then we moved to Baltimore to house it in a larger Jewish community. And I got certific- certified as a weight loss coach and nutrition consultant. And I've been doing it for the last, um, you know, as an avocation,
0: as a vocation for the last uh, almost 15 years now. Was weight loss or weight issues something that you struggled with throughout your childhood, your adolescence, or was that really something that emerged a little bit later in life? It was always a struggle,
1: but not to the extent that it was this last time. I was, you know, always on the, you know, gaining, losing 30, 40 pounds. You know, when I, when I finished college, I went down first working at the Sun, I gained like 50 pounds, kind of transitions for me. So kind of eating was that fallback. But I was always very into sports and active. So sports, working out, kind of helped eventually take the weight up, but never really changed my relationship with food until someone helped me realize, you know, Ellie, you don't have a weight problem, you have a food problem. Stop focusing on changing your weight, stop focusing on changing yourself and your eating habits and your relationship with food. And that's really where the whole mindset, you know, mind shift uh, took, took place.
0: What was the, uh, the highest weight levels you, you got to? And how would you say that it impacted your life? I mean, significantly.
1: I mean, besides being called big guy under the basket, you know, um, I mean, I was morbidly obese. Uh, you know, my life was, a, I mean, my, my, my numbers at that time were fine, but you're ticking time bomb. So even though my blood pressure wasn't, uh, you know, over 200, my cholesterol and my, you know, uh, blood sugar wasn't alarmingly high. You know, it was a ticking time, but certainly my activity, my shortness of breath. But not only that, just physically, just emotionally, you know, because I knew what I was doing and I was, it was, no one likes or enjoys, you know, there's no jolly fat people. You know, people can put on a, a, on a, on a veneer because they, they can put forward a, uh, you know, a, you know, a front. At the end of the day, when you're living with just getting up in the morning with the back aches and the knee pain and seeing yourself in the mirror and coming out of the shower, it's not a pleasant experience. So living with that constant remorse and regret and understanding that it's a self-inflicted wound. No one did it to me. No one ever tied my hands behind my back put a stick in my mouth and shove the food in my face. You know, those were choices that I made, even though at that time they seemed, they were delicious and good, but, you know, really it was just, it were very inappropriate behavior. So besides just the physical toll that it took, the fit, the emotional toll, and quite frankly also, as far as credibility goes, I had students, again, I was in care of here. I was trying to tell people to, you know, rise above the mundane and commit themselves and think about a life of, you know, of, of you know, of, they would say, "Oh, the Torah is just too binding and too restricting. All these mitzvahs." And said, so, "No, it's a, it's enabling for you. And then, you know, to look at mitzvahs not from a place where they're burdening us, but from a place that it's a you know, it's an opportunity for us to grow and to prioritize. And the more we mature, the more we prioritize and make choices that we feel are in our best interest, even if they require some some effort." So here's what I'm trying to teach people and enable them. And you know, the guys would ask, would tell me, "You know, Ellie, I don't understand. You know, you." You have such discipline in your life. You you daven three times a day. You only eat kosher food. You keep Shabbos, but you can't get a handle on your hamburgers. So I said, you know, the question the question is better than the answer. They were right. So that also impacted my credibility, which is, again is at what I do. Fast forward, I now I'm still in the Jewish world. I'm more it's more in reach than outreach. Well, I do work with non-observant, but a lot of observant people, and a lot of, I work with a lot of educators and and uh, outreach professionals were in the same boat and realize that same conflict and help them through
0: gaining that credibility internally as well as externally. Now you mentioned, I guess your first stop in this, this journey to find a better way was uh, Overeaters Anonymous, OA, which is a 12-step recovery program. How did you learn about it? Why was that your, your destination point? And what did it teach you?
1: Well, it was, it was a community of people who had success, who were taking their eating behaviors seriously? It wasn't a diet. I'd done a bunch of diets um, and you know weight loss programs and uh, weight loss pills, which is nothing more than legal amphetamine. You know, it didn't uh, make me lose weight; it just made me eat faster. But so I saw, it, and it was also focusing not on the weight, but focusing on the eating behaviors and the relationship with food, which resonated with me. But also, there were people with a had that success. So that's kind of what. Was my initial gravitation toward that, and how did you know about it? And did somebody just recommend that you try it out? And yeah, I'd seen people, i people who I'd seen had success
0: with it, and uh, yeah, decided to to go into uh, to look at it. You mentioned that you had not a uh, not a weight problem, but a food problem. Uh, that that's I would imagine one of the mantras of of OA. And what did you kind of learn about that? What and, and speak a little bit about what that actually means. Sure. So I'll give you an example. Um, you know, anytime you want
1: a long-term solution to any problem, you have to identify the core issue and apply a remedy to that issue. So let's take an alcoholic, for example. You know, let's say call him you know, Jim. So Jim has, is an alcoholic. So there's one, there are two possibilities as to his core problem. One of these drunk all the time. Another possibility is that he is, you know, has a dysfunctional relationship with alcohol. So let's assume for a second that his problem, that he's drunk a lot. What remedy can we apply to someone who's inebriated that will alleviate that? And let's see if we, we achieve a long-term solution. So the classic way of making someone sober, if they're drunk, is putting them in a cold shower, we give giving them a pot of black coffee. So let's say he drinks that pot of black coffee, you know, goes in that cold shower and he comes out of the kitchen, comes out of the bathroom and says, I'm sober. Therefore I'm cured and it'll never happen again. You don't need to be an addiction counselor to know that he's fooling himself. He got rid of that inebriation, but he didn't achieve a long-term solution, so therefore his inebriation is not his problem. His problem is that he has a dysfunctional relationship with alcohol, put him in a recovery program or some type of, you know, medium for that, and we'll see a long-term success. So now we have to circle back and define our terms. Therefore if his being inebriated wasn't his problem, then what do we call it? And this is one of the key things in our work. It's not a problem, it was a consequence of his problem. by no means am I belittling the consequence of being drunk. It's a deadly and a serious problem. But it wasn't his problem, it was his consequence. right? So now let's focus. I thought I had a weight problem, which was certainly a legitimate thought because I was 300 pounds and more by the little piece. And what did diets do? They make you lose weight to crash diet. They're like cold showers and pots of black coffee. And I lost, I lost 50 pounds on Atkins. I got that thing to be purple for a while and I won't mention anything further than that, you know? (laughs) But put it right back on because you know, but they're all focusing on just, you know, until someone said, Ellie Hakum, you know, wise guy, you don't have a weight problem, you have a food problem. Meaning I have a dysfunctional relationship with food, and a consequence of that is weight gain. So therefore, stop focusing on the consequence, stop focusing on the problem, and you'll achieve a wonderful benefit, which is weight loss.
0: What's the way to attack that? How do you deal with a a more foundational problem of of food?
1: Oh, so, so right. So first you identify your terms. What's the definition of a healthy relationship with food? Why did God create food? What's its purpose in life? So the the purpose of food is one function, one function only to fuel us. It's fuel for our body. You put gasoline in your car to fuel. You can sit in a wonderful car. It could be like a luxury Jaguar with leather seats and warm, individual heated compartments and these big tires. But if that's not the right guess, then it's not going to go anywhere, right? So the function of fuel is to power the car. The function of food is to fuel the body. And we put together a whole paradigm, what's called QQT, a healthy relationship with fuel. is the right quality, the right quantity, and the right timing. So the first thing is to understand how you have to n- nourish yourself, which I didn't know. I knew how to, you know, indulge myself with food. I knew how to reward myself with food, to comfort myself with food, to escape with food. To, you know but I didn't know how to nourish myself with food I really didn't and I was I wasn't a stupid guy I mean I got sneak I wasn't I wasn't at the top of my class I don't want to misre- misrepresent myself right but you know I'm not a stupid guy but I didn't know how to nourish myself I didn't know like what were the proper foods the right, right amounts the information was out there I just never accessed it or never really cared to so that's the first thing you have to understand you have to have a proper food plan to understand what your body needs and the second thing is now diagnosing, I'm gonna have feelings. like what's the difference between hunger and appetite? My hunger is gonna be satisfied. My nutritional needs will be met. my energy will be satiated. but I'm sitting down, let's say, you know, let's say six ounces of, of meat is the appropriate amount that my body needs. But I'm sit, sitting down to a ten ounce steak. When I finish that that forkful, that's the end of the six ounce. What's my body want to do? Eat the next ounce and forth, you know. So I used to think just because I'm hungry, just because I want to eat, my appetite's engaged, it must mean I need to eat. Wrong. I need to learn to like satiation is not necessarily an organic feeling. It's a learned skill. And that cutoff switch in some people works kind of regularly, but a lot of us, it's either delayed or it's broken. And for me, I'm quantitatively challenged. I would just eat until I was physically, you know, stuffed. I would never. Um, supersize because I would always order in, in plural, two of this or three of that, you know. So I, quantity was for me the value of the meal, as much if not more than the taste of the meal. All you can eat buffets were my like home away from home, because I always valued that. And because I because I, I had such a ravenous appetite, I wasn't like a big sweet tooth person. I mean, I wouldn't turn down a piece of cake, but I was like bucket of fried chicken. You know, go to Max's <laughs> Deli. Max's Deli was my, I don't know how to use the word, but was was my house of you know. My choice of, uh, and Max is great, and you know, it's great, they serve great food. But for me, the fried chicken with the beer-battered onion rings and
0: fries, that was my staple. What do you do now to address those same feelings? In other words, what, whatever food is providing you, what did you learn to replace it with? Great question. So the first part,
1: as far as the physical, just I taught, my, my, I taught myself the skill of satiation. That, and it's uncomfortable. Right, that to, to want to eat more and not to act on that. That's called maturation, right? Just because you're in the middle of an enjoyable experience. There's nothing wrong with having that desire. It just doesn't mean it's the right choice to make. I'll give you an example. Let's say, you know, let's say you have a six-year-old daughter named Miriam, and she's out in the summer playing with her friends, you know, having a great time. At six o'clock at night, her mom calls her in. Miriam, it's time to come in for dinner now. What's your first reaction? No. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Is she a mean, you know, brat? No. She's in the mid- she's playing with her friends, she's in the middle of an enjoyable experience, and she wants to perpetuate that fun time. It's a perfectly normal and natural reaction. But left to her own devices to act on that momentary feeling, what's she gonna do? She's gonna stay out to six thirty seven, seven thirty, she's gonna come home late, miss dinner, not shower, not get enough sleep, be cranky the next morning, and not do well in school. So the loss will far outweigh the gain. So, Miriam needs external boundaries and guides to help her make the right choice. Because just because she feels like doing that doesn't mean it's the right choice for her to make. So, that's what I needed. Right? Just because I enjoy food and there's nothing wrong, I mean, God put taste buds on our tongue to enjoy the act of eating. But just because I'm eating something doesn't necessarily mean it's the right choice or the right amount for me to have. So, I need to have external boundaries and to
0: accept that. Why did you feel like you needed to start an organization? It sounds like you really went all in on this experience and you know you created a whole new organization why wasn't away enough and as you had this wonderful worldwide fellowship and you know just refer people there it's free <laughs> and, right uh, you it's know. a great question I, I'm, and i work concurrently with clients who
1: are in the 12-step program as well as working with me we we created to do awareness because we do a lot of programs for schools and communities and you know residents and do a lot of inspirational seminars also to bring a Torah perspective to it, like how do you, you know, keep to a food plan in Shabbos on Pesach with matzah, with kiddish, with all the different unique uh, requirements and priorities that we have. Yeah. And also, I think it was like the perfect confluence of events that led me to, because I'm a natural communicator and educator, and through my own personal experience, I had that unique credibility. Um, and also in the Jewish world, we do live in a fishbowl, that the concept of anonymity, is easier to uh, maintain in a greater environment a greater community it's much harder to feel that same comfort and to perpetuate that when you have carpool with someone who might be in a meeting or they're your your teacher or you know someone you see at the grocery store or your rabbi you know a lot of my clients are very high profile people in the jewish world who it's just not relevant it's not appropriate for them to be in a fellowship with other people in their community, even with the, the tool of anonymity. And I think also with, I'm you know, I'm a big proponent of 12-step fellowship in a greater concept. I think it's much more difficult to have sustained success in the concept of food, because with any other types of compulsive behaviors, it's a very clear bottom line. You either drink or you didn't drink. You either gamble or you didn't gamble. Either you took drugs or didn't take drugs. So the, the demarcation of sobriety or... Or non sobriety is very clear. I'm not saying it's easy at all. I'm not belittling, but it's a very simple definition. Yeah. You can't say that about eating, right? Did you didn't eat or did unless it's a fasting, right? <laughs> therefore, and, and therefore there's no real, there's no bottom line in the, in overeaters and, and plus there are dozens of manifestations of o, overeaters anonymous as well. So there's no bottom line of what it is. So therefore we kind of created that and took a lot of the foundation I had there, plus a lot of experience, had a lot of Torah concepts to change to personal change and that's really kind of put together to create the, what we have now which is the survey solution which really is, is really helped thousands of people around the world and not just jews it's really a, a program for anyone
0: uh, to want to change the relationship with food and have long-term success so what what are some of those torah unique jewish torah insights that come to bear on this particular process Sure. Um, so uh, there's a famous line
1: in Tehillim that says, <speaking in Hebrew> So, you know, turn away from the bad, but and do the good. Seek out peace, and run after it. So it's not just about so, <speaking in Hebrew> it's not just about avoiding the bad. They're like, oh, I got to just not, don't eat the chocolate cake. Don't eat the, uh, you know, stay away from the, the diet soda. That's the number one question of what can I eat? What, you know, what are the things people have their diet lens and mentality on? They're looking at what can't I do, right? Well, it's not just that. You, it, it's just as much a commission as omission. It's the assay tov. Like you have to properly nourish yourself. Myself and 90% of my clients who were, when I was overweight and 90% of clients who begin who are overweight, they're actually undernourishing themselves most of the day. They're skipping breakfast. Right, grabbing something here or there on the run, and they make up for it with unhealthy eating later in the day or at night. They underprioritize their nutritional needs. So it's just as important to Asia to, to prioritize. I tell my clients, the three most important appointments you have in your day is your breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Without exception, because no one else is going to do it for you. And Hashem holds us, God holds us accountable to those things that we have most control over. And the one thing that we have most control over anything else is that's is our health. And our health is Getting proper rest, breathing, which happens uh, without our conscious effort. The only thing that we consciously engage and control is our eating. So that's the first part, first two parts is the ra, you know, avoid the bad, asito, but just importantly, engage in the good, prioritize your eating. Bakesholm, bhvakesholm, realize the shalm, the shalemus you'll have, shalom doesn't just mean peace, it comes from the root shalim, which means complete, whole, right? I'm a whole person now. I'm not just the integrity I have, tohu kibur. My inside and my outsides are consistent. I still show piyam kippur. I'm not strong on a or a you know a righteous person, but I have that consistency. I have that integrity and that credibility, right? And I seek out peace, and I want peace. I want to re- desire it, and I don't. I don't burden it. Like we people, oftentimes we think of a, of a diet as a burden, as bitter. You know, what's the cheap food? What can I have? What's free? You know, and that's what so many people fear. The boundaries no embrace boundaries because only with boundaries can we progress in life and the last part of it which is the kicker to you, you've got to chase after it it's not going to happen to you so many people said oh that that diet didn't work for me well if it's a new treatment it's manifested for nutrition where it's a milkshake in the morning milkshake in the afternoon a celery stick and the chickpea for dinner well that's not going to work for you but if you worked if, you, if you're working with a you know a responsible nutritionist and they're giving you a healthy food plan what well, didn't work for me well no did you work it, right? So you read, 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 You got to chase after it. you got to make it a priority, and you got to run after it. Is that just one of the concepts that uh, we have? There are tons. I could speak to you all day about the different sources we have in Torah about. And the bottom line is, it's a mitzvah. One of the 613 commandments is old to
0: take care of our bodies. How do you advise people to deal with, you mentioned Shabbat, you mentioned the holidays, you know, the old joke of, you know, they, uh, they attacked us, we won, let's eat, you know, and, and the whole culture of eating within Judaism is so pronounced, especially within more observant communities where you have these, you know, kiddishes on Shabbat and followed by lunches, followed by more, I mean, the culture is so food-centric. How do you advise people to go about doing that without completely, you know, bastardizing their Jewish experience? Well, I'm here to enhance it because what their experience they're having is not a Jewish experience.
1: It's an indulgent experience. Don't judge Judaism by Jewish behavior. And we certainly apply that idea to many aspects of life. And certainly, very frankly, if the Rambam, Maimonides were standing at the end of a Kiddush table, (laughs) seeing how we behaved, he said, no, this is how Kazal, this is how the rabbis really envisioned for us to have a Kiddush. Are we being kadosh at a Kiddush? Are we being holy? Are we being sent? Last week's Parsha, there's no greater paradigm than that. Kedoshim tiyu, the Pusik says, the verse says, you should be holy. And Nachmanides, the Ranban, says, what's the definition of Kedusha? Sanctify yourself in those things which are permitted for you. And he gives an example of someone who is a novel baritius of Torah, a despicable person within the confines of Torah. Someone who has the, the most glot and the, the finest, kosher certification in the world, but he's eating to hurt himself? That's not Kedusha. And what is, it's not called Shabbos Chol, it's called Shabbos Kodesh. So any day of the week where you want to have the boundaries, you want to have a healthy relationship with food is specifically on Shabbos because then in the end, you'll have Kedusha. Ah, what about owning Shabbos? So there's nothing wrong with enjoying a food. That's where you want to save special foods that you have for Shabbos, right? The famous um, Medrash, which is a famous, Jewish child story, Yosef Mokeh the Shabbos, right? Yosef, who loved the Shabbos, he'd have the special fish for Shabbos. So food that you like, that's healthy, you save it for Shabbos, right? And the Shlach Kodesh writes specifically that you're supposed to minimize the quantity and maximize the quality. Because there's nothing wrong with having a gesund and a at the same time, being healthy and enjoying at the same time, but which is the primary
0: and which is the secondary. Do you only deal or primarily deal with people who are challenged with weight issues? Or do you also uh, get involved with just general health and people who just want to eat healthier, even if they aren't in any way struggling with, with weight or any clearly manifest health issues?
1: Yeah, yeah, sure. I deal with anyone who feels that they need to improve their relationship with food and, you know, is finding it difficult to do on their own irrespective of what the consequence is whether they're five pounds overweight 105 pounds overweight or underweight or you know there's something that they can't get a handle on on their own. or a lot oftentimes I'll just do a nutrition consultation some people just want to know they don't they don't have that knowledge and they can internally put those boundaries on going forward but they want to know what does a healthy food plan look like so I meet with them like as a one-off thing but most of it's coaching video conferencing national I have clients all over the world uh, individual one-on-one as well as um the group, we have a lot of online group that we run and also in person in the you know, New Jersey, New York uh, area. That's where my office is. I have an office in Lakewood, New Jersey, and an office in Brooklyn. Where I'll see people individually, you know, face to face.
0: Tell me a little bit about what Sovea actually does in terms of the practical services. You know, I think I learned about it because on my children's weekly newsletter, they send out every Friday, the kids bring home. The back page is all insights from Sovea, right. <laughs> your organization about all different kinds of topics. But
1: that's one of the things I, we recently started Sovea is because I wanted this to be an educational resource for the Jewish world. And one of the things I started writing um, about 12 years ago was a Torah thought on health and nutrition based on the weekly portion of the week or the holiday or some other idea from the Torah or from the Talmud. Uh, and the Yeshiva of Greater Washington or the Torah School has been subscribing to it's a free newsletter and uh, they've been subscribing to it for years and they send it home with the weekly partial sheets, either weekly or monthly. And that's one of the resources that we do. So we provide it. And I've got one of my books coming out, you know, in the fall in regards to most of the time you think of food for thought. Well, this is thoughts for food. Yeah. <laughs> What else does uh, Sovea do? It's mostly right. so primarily what we do. Um, we do weight. It's weight loss coaching and nutrition counseling. I'm, you know, I have dual certification uh, as a nutrition wellness consultant as well as a weight medicine specialist. And uh, I work with individuals, families, children, couples. Like I said, you know, video conference, in person, over the phone, one on one, and also in groups. Uh, and that's what we do. Really changing the world, changing the Jewish world one pound at a time, but really changing the greater world one pound at a time and really we're revolutionizing the way the world looks at weight loss because someone of the world is about diet about the diet mentality so I really one of the things I've done and in, in the concept I have you know we have a website we have a lot of social media presence we have 8,000 subscribers to our newsletter and our video podcasts so we have a pretty big platform to really educate people to understand it to have this whole mind shift that it's not a weight issue you know weight gain is not a weight problem It's a food problem. It's not a medical problem. It's a behavior problem. And how do you go about addressing it and about changing it? So we're really taking a lot of the
0: precepts and the axioms that exist in the diet and weight loss world and turning them on their head. Are there any uh, success stories that you could share with us, people that you've, obviously without using names, but just profiles of situations that you've uh, encountered that have really been heartening, that have been, Make, make you feel like you're making a real difference with this work so that's you know uh it's it's a tremendous privilege to be to do what i do to
1: be good and to do good you know to try to be successful but most importantly you know to help change people's lives literally save people i you know i'm members of it's and i'm the most important person in the room because it's is a reactive you know the emergency services which is an incredibly important organization but they're reacting to an already compromised situation. I'm here to help people not get into that situation in the first place. You have clients, uh, you know, a teacher now, he's in a principal at a school in New Jersey. Uh, his first name is Baruch. He lost 350 pounds He's kept it off for 10 years. Lost 350 pounds? I'm sorry, he was 350 pounds, he's, he kept it off. He's lost 150 pounds and he's kept it off for uh, for 12 years now. Um, and just one of many, thank God, you know, people that have had, and and again, it's not just the physical uh, recovery and change and regaining our health. Because really, that's what weight loss is. It's not changing your body, it's regaining your health. And it's not just the emotional recalibration and maturation. Spiritually, I mean, God gave our, us our bodies to take care of. There's no greater collateral that God gave us for our souls to, to take care. And if we're abusing that, and all the time that we're acting in conflict with God's will for us, well, as a spiritual person, that's grating on you. But when you consistently act in a way that's in concert with God's will for you, that's incredibly enriching and uh, elevating. And helping other people achieve that
0: is is a great opportunity, and I feel very privileged to be uh, part of that. Ellie, tell us a little bit about where people can learn more about the organization, how they can get involved if they want to engage some of these services, or where they can just learn and read and, and, and so forth.
1: Sure. One address our website, Surveya.com. It's S-O-V-E-Y-A. S is in Sam, Victor, E-Y is in Yellow, A. Surveya.com. Everything to sign up for our newsletter, our free download report. Right there, you can go to our social media platforms. More information about our weight loss coaching. Just why do we? What's the origin of the name S-O-V-E-Y-A? So, it's one of the verses in the Torah that where we have the Birkatamazon, Mazon, the benching after the meals, that saying. The, the blessings after the meal, that says, de you shall eat, you shall be satisfied. So the word survey means to be satisfied. To so learn to satisfy yourself. And we said, that's what we once say. You know, satisfaction is the greatest blessing. And contrary to what the Rolling Stone said,
0: you can't get no satisfaction. Well, <laughs> you certainly can when you work with surveyor. Amazing, amazing. Well, Ellie Glazer, it's an incredible personal story, personal journey. It's great to hear the amazing work that someone from uh, my area, my neck of the woods, has go turps, go turps, baby, you got it. And uh, we really thank you for spreading this message and for helping to introduce healthy eating, but more importantly, healthy living and spiritual connectivity to the Jewish world and beyond. Ellie Glazer, Sovea founder, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, I thank you. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com com slash Jews You Should Know. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews You Should Know.